And welcome back to Butter With That, a movies podcast where some friends from Philadelphia come together to talk about some of our favorite movies, maybe some of our least favorite movies every now and then. Um, And we are kicking off this week by starting a brand new theme. Um, But before we get into that, how's everybody doing? The five of us are back together today. Yeah, hanging in. You know, the, uh, the current situation goes on, I suppose. In the meantime, though, I had a really nice opportunity to check some things out. Um, as I think last time we spoke, I've been pretty hung up on The Sopranos and where to go from there. But uh, found a uh, found new life through Boardwalk Empire, which I've never gotten around to. That being, um, you know, Steve Buscemi, uh, Michael Shannon, and, you know, tons of other great actors. Um, in a 1920s era drama about um, prohibition and uh, rum running and things like that. Really captivating series so far. I'm midway through season two and um, looking forward to checking out the rest because Michael Shannon's character is incredible and uh, he's great as always. Season two is probably my favorite season. That one's very good. I love the question of like, how are we? Because at this point, I'm just existing. I I don't even know what else I'm doing, just existing. Um, But this weekend, I existed by watching the docuseries on Netflix about the Cecil Hotel. Um, Very interesting. Um, I've been meaning to watch that. Yeah, it's, I think it's, I don't think it needed to be four episodes, quite honestly. Um, And um, basically, it's about the Cecil Hotel and also the... um, crazy disappearance and death of Elisa Lamb. And, um, you know, in the true crime community, it's been like, like hotly debated as to what happened and, or what didn't happen. And I think that I feel secure in what the, the documentary presented. Um, I didn't think I was going to come away with an answer, but I think, I think that we did. I, I That's pretty much the main thing I watched since we last recorded. And I really liked episode one. And then was terribly bothered by the rest of the documentary. I don't know. Yeah. It, like, I, I, if, I don't know. This is like, could be a discussion that could be a whole thing in and of itself. But I don't know. The approach to how they talked about the case and talked about Elisa Lamb, I thought was incredibly problematic and exploitative. I don't know. You know, Connor, I'm so glad you said that because I have been. I don't really know how to feel about the docuseries and I've been sort of waiting to hear from people who like who I have in my life who have bipolar like I've been waiting for them to to talk about this because I don't know it feels like really triggering the way that they speak about bipolar um and also like the the web sleuths that they interviewed there was something nasty about that too and like with that case, it's hard to not talk about like internet sleuths and like people who do like the Netflix documentary "Don't Fuck with Cats" is like super interesting. Uh, just like these people who like devote hundreds or thousands of hours of their lives to trying to solve one case, but to like have those people be the main engine of the documentary, and then to just kind of indulge every conspiracy theory under the planet until the last five minutes just seems, I don't know. In a world where conspiracy theories are believed by tens of millions of people, I don't know. To not set the facts right away and to just dangle it for four hours seems not great. Yeah. Yeah, it could have been like an hour and a half documentary, mm-hmm. and then that's enough. I have two movies I want to talk about. Um, one of them, which I don't need to talk about, but I did watch Aquaman finally on Valentine's Day, and that movie is fucking wild. Um, I just really enjoyed watching Patrick Wilson scream about being the ocean master for like two hours. That was really fun for me. Um, but I watched a movie that, um, I've been waiting for it to be available for a while, um, called St. Maud. Um, it's a horror movie, um, just about this like really lonely, like young woman that like takes care of like, um, people as they're dying, um, and starts having these really like weird religious, like vaguely sexual experiences with like God. Um, it's very weird. And the woman that she is taken care of is, uh, Jennifer, I think you pronounce it eel. Uh, the woman that plays, uh, pride in pride and prejudice plays Lizzie Bennett. Um, And I don't see her in a ton of stuff. And she was really great. She's like this aging dancer that has cancer in the movie. And she's like awesome. 
Um, so yeah, super weird and creepy. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um, and then we watched an older film um, called The Silent Partner, uh, which I don't know if anyone has seen it. Um, it's an old Christopher Plummer movie. So we watched it like right after Christopher Plummer passed away. Um, it stars him and Elliot Gould. Um, so it's this like crime movie. Uh, Christopher Plummer robs the bank that Elliot Gould works at. Um, but Elliot Gould knows it's going to happen and he takes the money instead. Uh, it's like a really interesting movie. And Christopher Plummer is like fucking scary in it. I've like never really seen him in a role where he's just kind of like a crazy criminal. Um, and it was like a lot of fun. Um, he wears like this like really like low cut like scoop neck with like a weird chain necklace. It's so funny how 70s he's dressed in it. Um, but yeah, super enjoyable. You should definitely check that out. The uh, I guess recently I watched an older movie um, with uh, it's called Dark City. I was like back to back with Dark Angel and then Dark City. Dark City, beautifully shot. It looks great. It has no discernible plot. Uh, Rufus Sewell is in it. He's he's adequately brooding. Uh, Jennifer Connelly is given nothing to do, which is dumb. But if you're interested in looking for like a very um, stylized sci-fi noir it's it's intriguing. It drags and it and Bertha Sutherland plays this doctor and is terrible. And I'm not really selling it, but if you're intrigued, look it up. And I, I recommend it because it's it's shot so well and it creates it looks really good. Um it's not it's not 80s. It's I think it's it it builds this really, really interesting world. It looks part 1950s noir, part like matrix uh sci-fi uh realm but but the plot is kind of bullshit <laughs> <laughs> and thinks it's oh, way it's smarter Alex than it is. movie who did the cr- cr- i've never seen the crow i don't know anything about him but Garen and i just watched it the other day because he had never seen it before um and you know being like a you know sad like goth kind of kid in middle school i really liked that movie so <laughs> Pretty great movie, but but Bruce Lee's son died, right? Yeah, in the production. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, which Why was would really they release it. Um, I mean, I guess he films like most of it, um, but it's it was really interesting to watch because Garrett and I just recently started watching Bruce Lee movies, and so it's really interesting to see Brandon Lee and like see how much he kind of looks like his dad. And he also has like this very similar, like on screen, like charisma that his dad has, mm-hmm. um, which like also made it like really sad watching it this time, just being like, Oh my God, like you, like you could have been like another, like Bruce Lee with just this like, you know, Hollywood energy that he had. So it was like very sad. Yeah. Maybe I'll check it out. Yeah. But... He's also great in showdown in little Tokyo. If you haven't seen that movie, oh, that's a real no. gem. Awesome. Right on. Well, before we uh, dive into our new theme and new movie, uh, we have an exciting announcement to make. Uh, For quite some time, we've talked a lot about Cinema 76. Tori was a writer for them. And recently, we've also talked about how Cinema 76 has merged with Movie John. And with Movie John's new sort of rebranding, they have launched a podcast network, and we are excited to be a part of Movie John's podcast network. Uh, We're joined by several other really wonderful Philadelphia um, film podcasts. Uh, It's Us, Cinematic Crypt, Dep Impact, F Yeah F1, Hate Watch, Great Watch, I Like to Movie Movie, and I Saw It in a Movie. Um, So hopefully as time goes on, more podcasts will join the network. And uh, going forward, you'll probably hear us plugging some various other podcasts, uh, audio bumps here or there. So we're really excited that this is launched, and hopefully this will bring in new listeners to butter with that. And hopefully our listeners will start listening to those other podcasts as well. Like, oh, here we are. Yeah, big things in 2021. Oh, yeah. Already better than 2020. <laughs> All right, so let's jump into our new theme. Um, last theme, we were taught, you know, pulling some movies from our top 100 movie list. And now we are jumping into a theme that I feel like is kind of, kind of surprised we haven't touched in our first 100 episodes, and that is time travel movies. Uh, I feel like that is such a 
uniquely sort of cinematic thing to do. Not uniquely cinematic, but movies have done it a lot. Um, and for today, we sort of have a kind of time travel movie, not really a conventional one, but Palm Springs, uh, which came out in 2020. It's a Hulu exclusive starring uh, Andy Samberg, Chris Malati, Peter Gallagher, and Camilla Mendez. Um, this was, I believe, came out sometime in July. So this was one of the first 2020 movies I saw, and it definitely made a pretty big impact on me then and is a movie for various reasons that I have continued to think a lot about. Uh, but before we dive into Palm Springs itself, has anybody seen this movie before? I know some people have, right? Yeah, I have. I had Yeah, I, I saw it, I think, over the summer mm. it came out on Hulu. So pretty even split of seen and haven't seen. Um, Sam or Dave, do you want to give us your take on somebody who watched Palm Springs for the first time? I I love Andy Samberg. I don't think that this movie's for me, but I do think that it's a very interesting premise. And it's sort of what I wanted Groundhog's Day to be when we watched that a, a year or two ago. Um and and I had brought up like these questions of consent and this movie tackled that issue, I think, in some ways. So I actually really appreciated that. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Dave, how about you? Yeah, so I think this uh, this movie has some strengths that I'm looking forward to discussing. I think, uh, Sam, as you highlighted, the way that it handles uh, a familiar premise but brings uh, kind of new threads to light and utilizes different devices and interestingly enough, becomes uh, more interactive than uh, Groundhog's Day. Uh, I think it's it's kind of interesting in a regard. Uh, there's one glaring problem with this movie that drove me nuts the whole time, which I'm sure we'll get to as we discuss. So I'm looking forward to discussing the strengths of this movie and uh, the one thing that kind of drove me up the walls because I, I found it to be a bit of a mixed bag, um, although I think um, its its strengths are pretty pronounced in spite of the one thing that I had issue with. That's why I was really excited to bring this movie to butter with that because there's a lot that I enjoy and then a lot that I have some questions about and I think are really kind of interesting to dive into. Uh, Toy or Christine, do you want to kind of share your sort of initial thoughts on Palm Springs, revisiting it or, you know, seeing it again? Uh, well, I, I know that when we had done our uh, 2020 kind of recap or highlights, what was great about 2020, I know that in my like uh, sort of runner-up best performances, I had mentioned Kristen Milioti and I, I think that she really shone in this, or shined, shone, shone down. I don't know, whatever. She was great in this movie. And I was, I had never seen her anything. And I thought she really did a wonderful job weaving between a character who's going through um, moments of despair and then navigating moments of utter humor, like just, utter boundlessness and and she brings a really wonderful comedic presence and also an emotional grounding which i thought was great um i think yeah i mean i think we'll we'll talk a little bit more about it later in the episode uh, episode but ultimately things that i was kind of wrestling with uh, upon sort of reconsidering this movie was kind of this loop of rich white millennial malaise essentially and not thinking that it, the movie really tackles that theme hard, like as like a hard hitting uh, critique of it, but just sort of like a, well, this is what these characters are rolling with. And so um, don't know if it, the movie addresses, no, I, I don't think the movie addresses that, um, that theme in, in a critical, enough of a critical lens, but, but there are, yeah, there are really wonderful scenes. I would also love of, of humor and, uh, of great acting and great performing I'd love to talk about as well. Um, yeah, I've seen this movie because Garrett also did it on a podcast. So we like watched it together and then like watched it again, like a, a couple months later. Um, but this was just like, you know, a fun like quarantine watch. Um, you know, I, I like Andy Samberg a lot and uh, his movies, like his like sense of humor really works for me most of the time. Um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is like another thing I've been watching a lot during quarantine. So like all of that is really great. Um, and then, yeah, what's her name? Christina Milani. Is that it? Christina Milani. Um, she uh, was really, really awesome too. The only other thing I had seen her in was How I Met Your Mother. And she is done like real fucking dirty by that show um, and kind of just used as a plot device, um, which is really unfortunate. So I was glad that she like really got to show her acting chops and like, you know, 
holds her own really well against Andy Samberg, who like, you know, is this more like kind of established like comedic presence in a lot of things. Um, J.K. Simmons is also like really fucking funny in this. I love seeing J.K. Simmons in in different roles. Um, and then, yeah, I, I just think that it, I'm sure we'll talk about like what this kind of adds, like the subgenre of like time travel movies, which is like the time loop movies. Um, Cause there are a lot of different things this one movie does compared to some of uh, some of the other ones. Um, but yeah, I mean like Garrett and I watched this and we just thought it was really cute. And it kind of has this theme of just like, you know, being stuck in the same place, like isn't bad necessarily if like you have like a really great person to spend that time with uh which was like kind of cute since we're all kind of in quarantine and and some of us are quarantining with our partners which could be you know uh challenging when everyone's spending that much time together so uh i really enjoyed that definitely hit right at the time yeah at the right time summer 2020 uh i don't think hulu really could have timed that any better so before we dive in any further, I'll just give a brief plot synopsis. Uh, you heard us mention Groundhog Day quite a few times. Previous episode, one of my personal favorite movies. Um, so the synopsis is, Carefree Niles and a reluctant maid of honor, Sarah, have a chance encounter at a Palm Springs wedding where they get stuck in a time loop and the two wedding guests develop a budding romance while living the same day over and over and over again. Um, something that we can all kind of relate to over the past almost year. Uh, we already brought up kind of a lot of the themes that, you know, and ideas and questions that I had. But I guess the first one I just want to throw out there is compared to Groundhog Day, which I know that we all saw. Um, how do you, you know, like Groundhog Day compared to Palm Springs as Palm Springs is sort of a newer take on this idea? I think I like the idea that there's more than one person who is in on the loop. I mm-hmm. think that really makes a difference, particularly when it does come to, um, you know, the big issue I had with Groundhog's Day, like I mentioned before, was this idea of consent. And we do touch on that. Um, when Sarah finds out that she and Niles had had sex before, like several times, and he like withheld that information from her. And like her reaction, I think was like, Exactly right. And that was, I think, something that I obviously Groundhog's Day wasn't the time that that would have happened, like a conversation like that would have happened. But that's like, that's exactly where my brain went to watching that movie. So I'm happy that they tackled that. I going into it, I knew that this movie had some kind of time loop aspect. But I think what really drew me in was when Sarah really goes from just being a supporting character for the first, you know, 10 minutes of the movie to then really becoming um, co-protagonist with um, Niles. And so that, I know, for me, really drew me into the movie as, oh, now the person who's stuck has somebody to play off of. Yeah, going off of that, uh, both what uh, you, Connor, were saying and you, Sam, were talking about, yeah, it's like it tackles uh, notions of consent that we definitely talked about in Groundhog Day, Groundhog's Day, and it fleshes out a character, like, the partner character. So it's like Chris, uh, Kristen Milioti's character. Yeah. It's a lot of the story is told through her perspective. Some is told through Andy's perspective. Some is told through her perspective. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, it's, it does a wonderful job of balancing their um, attempts to try to navigate the situation instead of Andy McDowell just reacting constantly being given nothing to do and just, being the like reactor to everything that Bill Murray is doing the whole movie. Well, and it, yeah, like she, she ultimately like is the badass that like, you know, figures out like how they can, can get out of it because she's the one that's like, oh, we have all this time that we're just wasting doing bullshit. I can use this to like study like science and like theories and things that will actually help us. Um, which I think they do a little bit in like maybe Happy Death Day 2. Uh, she like uses her time to kind of like study like more of like the the physics and the aspects of it. But um, I I love that like she's like, yeah, I can actually use this to work like on myself as a person and like become smarter and hopefully like, uh, you know, a better person too, uh, which is, is a pretty awesome aspect to this, uh, the time loop genre. Yeah, I think one thing that's really interesting on top of all that, too, is that um, it, it's really uh, the, a lot of the importance of the characters' relationships are hinged upon, you know, them all being in this experience. But in essence, because of him dragging them into it, 
um, and how they individually respond to not only being trapped in a time loop, but how they feel about him as a character. Uh, that being, of course, um, Milani's character and J.K. Simmons's character, because he drags two people into the mix, um, which is a, a really smart move because, you know, you create a sympathetic kind of co-pilot character uh, that we can share the story with uh, initially until they develop through uh, Milani's character. But we also have this looming threat of J.K. Simmons being really pissed off that he's been thrust into this situation, which is a kind of a really interesting narrative twist. Yeah, and I think the drama that comes from the three of them and these three different perspectives, I think also plays really well into the theme of finding change in a changeless situation. Um, you know, the idea of like, how can we improve ourselves when everything feels the same? And, you know, with Niall's character, should we even improve ourselves? You know, and one scene I loved in the beginning is when, you know, Sarah's first being introduced to this world. And then she's like, well, what if we just try doing something good, being like a really selfless act and then selfless acts do nothing, um, which is something that I think I like a little more about this in Groundhog Day is that it's not, well, Bill Murray was the better person. So he was free from this curse. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that this was just not necessarily like something scientific, but something that is not morality driven, something that is, well, this sucks. It's unlucky. And, you know, Sarah works actively um, to try to solve it. And that feels more rewarding than Bill Murray just learning not to be a douchebag. And I love Bill Murray as a douchebag. That's like, he's really funny and really great in a lot of movies where he's that character. Uh, But this, I feel like emotionally just felt a little more earned um, than Groundhog Day. And yeah, J.K. Oh, Dave, were you going to say something? Uh, No, go ahead. If you're talking about J.K., that might be where I was going. Um, He is one of my favorite parts of this movie. And I think a lot, one of this movie's greatest strengths are the side characters. Um, I think this movie in a lot of ways, you know, has a lot of really great dialogue. Um, one of my favorite side characters is one of the groomsmen, Rory, who there's this earthquake that happens every day. And there's this one scene where they're like at the wedding itself. And he just screams, I should have stayed in the great lakes. And he's freaking out. Uh, is Peter that, is that Connor O'Malley? His, um, the, the other boyfriend or something, this guy that's just kind of like on the fringes and is yelling all the time. And he's in the scenes. Mm-hmm. Is that who you're thinking of? I think so. Yeah. yeah. That that guy's a great, a really funny comedian. So that was a real treat for to see him in this, especially as a side character. And uh, Peter Gallagher, too, I think is also oh, really great in this movie. Really well used. Every morning Sarah wakes up here and it's going to be a great wedding. Um, I think my favorite moment in the movie, and there's a lot, quite a few like montages in the movie. There's one where uh, Niles explains to Sarah how many people he's hooked up with, leaving out, you know, <laughs> hooked up with her. Uh, and one of my favorite moments is, yeah, and I hooked up with your dad. Sarah's like, what? It's like, yeah, you're, and then it cuts to them and Peter Gallagher and Andy Samberg are like face to face. And he goes, what are we doing? And puts his <laughs> in and says, no, no, that didn't happen. But that was every time I watch that, that just like absolutely kills me. Uh, Daisy, the um, bartender who's giving a hand job to Andy Samberg in the car in this montage, too, and says, you know, I once hit a guy at this car. I don't think he ever walked again. <laughs> um, so I just think this movie also does really fleshing out this world of Palm Springs um, in like a different way than Puxatawney in Groundhog Day was fleshed out, um, which I think to me brings the idea of like Palm Springs being like white purgatory and Puxatawney being like, or like white collar purgatory and Puxatawney being blue collar purgatory. Which I think kind of has interesting ramifications thematically um, for the movie. Like for me in Groundhog Day, the scene where he's at the bar um, with these two guys and says, you know, just Bill Murray's like, my life is just repeating over and over and over again. And the one guy's like, yeah, tell me about it. I've been in this dead end town for years, you know, my whole life basically is what he says. Um, And so I think a movie like that in Groundhog Day really pays off. And here in Palm Springs, I'm not quite sure if for me, I kind of really felt that moment of we're really stuck in this truly horror. In some ways, it is a really horrible situation. But as I think Dave, you brought up, or Christine, like the malaise of Pinterest millennial Palm Springs culture. And like, I feel like the only scene where you see actual, the people that may actually live in Palm Springs, like from what I'm assuming, Palm Springs is a place people like to vacation and like go to fancy weddings or whatever. But then when they go and do the like uh, choreographed dance in the bar, you see people that may actually like live in the town yet they're basically just used as like props and devices like in the setting which I do love that choreographed scene (laughs) that dancing scene in the bar but I think that it definitely there's I think moments of like a real lack of awareness like moments where there could be some like 
critique, like moments of critique and critiquing the characters. It kind of just, I mean, it's a, you know, it's just sort of like when there could be moments of critique, the movie doesn't really deal with it. Um, But you create some interesting juxtapositions though. And I think for me, this, I feel like I've been on like a personal journey with this movie of like being super hot on it right when it came out. And then as time has gone on, it's like, well, when should I set aside my more like critique movie podcaster film analysis kind of brain and then enjoy something? So I feel like this movie for me is a really interesting like borderline of like, just shut up and enjoy it because there's great performances, a lot of really great writing, um, great, you know cinematic desert vistas and then also part of me is like well could this have done more but did it really need to do more so i feel like i found a really interesting i don't know if line in the sand is the right word but one where i'm like kind of could be on either side of how i kind of think or feel and react to this movie ultimately i do really enjoy this movie i'd want to just throw in that yeah this is what's great about having a podcast and a group of people to discuss this is the heart of the discussion and picking apart uh the, the details and nuances of the movie. So never have to draw the line in the sand, Connor. You just bring it all. <laughs> I bring the whole sandbox. Bring that whole I mean, sand dump. <laughs> I mean, the other, like, Andy Samberg movie that I, like, watch, like, a fair amount is Hot Rod, which has, like, mm-hmm. nothing smart about it at all. But, like, damn, that movie is, like, the funniest fucking thing. <laughs> I do like that one a lot, yeah. So good. Hot Rod has been on my list for so long. I, I, you, I think you mentioned it probably in the first couple of weeks of us podcasting, and I still have not gotten around to seeing it. It's so it's like such a perfect like dumb thing for me to put on when I just like don't feel like you know engaging with like actual material. I'm like cool. I'm just gonna like laugh at this and lay on my couch. And I feel like that's one of Andy Samberg's strengths is like this really yeah. dumb comedy that is not like bottom of the barrel, Larry the Cable Guy, dumb. Yeah. Um, and I think he does such a good job in a lot of his roles. And Brooklyn Nine-Nine is also a show that I've fallen in love with uh, during the pandemic. Um, and I think he does such a good job of playing off of different characters and different actors. Um, and it was so fascinating seeing his relationship with all the different people um, in this movie, how he reacts to them in different ways and kind of seeing different parts of time, how he interacts with them and how he thinks and feels. Um, and I really did enjoy his relationship with um, Sarah. I thought that was a really wonderful duo to see grow, kind of come apart and then come back together. And in the end, really not, you know, it's a spoiler that we already talked about how Sarah basically finds a way to leave. Not a, you know, she says it's not a high chance, but basically a pretty good chance to leave the loop. And it felt pretty genuine of Andy Samberg. Like she's been gone for a while. He hasn't seen her in maybe months, years, maybe. Um, and she's finally back and he's really conflicted about staying or coming. Like, I thought that was a really great payoff, um, through them growing closer for the entire movie. Uh, but what are sort of your guys' thoughts on Andy Samberg and Kristen Malati and kind of their relationship in the movie? Well, one thing that I think is interesting is that we had a conversation earlier in the conversation, we were discussing how this movie feels like how one deals with, um, uh, being stuck and like kind of coming to accept and like not not care about a quote unquote, which I think is kind of like the basis of the first half of the movie. Um, but I think interestingly enough, it veers into different directions in that regard. I mean, I think, um, what we're treated to is kind of like almost a metaphysical treatise on, uh, different ways of dealing with a rut or like a continuous depressive episode and how there are different reflected responses, depending on the person to that kind of situation. Um, you know, one can be just sort of like languishing in malaise as we see, um, uh, as we see Niles do in a kind of like nihilistic way. We see uh, Sarah kind of grow more and become more interested in ways that she can learn about how to dig herself out of that situation. And then we have J.K. Simmons, who, um, and this is the one that kind of to me feels a little unearned, uh, just sort of devolves into like him appreciating the simplicity of like, well, at least I can be with my family every day. You know, I won't get to watch them grow up. I won't get to experience the life with them, but at least I can find comfort in this, like, you know, fixed point with them every morning, which I I don't know. It feels, it feels maybe to me a little unearned given the fervor of his character earlier on and that we don't really see that transformation happen. It just suddenly is the case when Andy Samberg's character, Niall shows up at his house. But the other two, I think are handled as pretty interesting metaphors for dealing with that kind of struggle. Mm. this is, you know, I feel like this is a movie where I would enjoy 
a little bit of a longer runtime if J.K. Simmons is going to be, if Roy was going to be kind of fleshed out a little more. Because how, you know, I'm interested in kind of how he got to that point, you know, and clearly this is something that was evolving over a long period of time. So I would really enjoy kind of seeing what that journey looked like for him. Yeah, or maybe just more glimpses of it or something to flesh it out a little bit more because it does suddenly feel as though, and I know like it could be years or months or whatever have passed since we last saw him, but like just the, the difference between like him being, and spoiler alert, obviously as we're discussing this, him being pinned uh, with the cars by Sarah. And then just the next time we see him, he's just like, you know, kick him back and he's just totally disengaged as far as being the, understood antagonist of the movie and maybe that's where the unearned characterization comes in where it's like well they needed some sort of antagonist it was like we're watching two people and their friction and tension play out but at at some point there has to be some sort of like third agitator and then you know jk simmons ultimately becomes that and so maybe it was just yeah it was just in service of like advancing the plot and having there be additional tension where we would have liked more, more JK fleshed out. Well, I don't, th- I, well, he gets to that point because of Sarah hitting him with the car. Sarah's just like, I'm, she reaches the like peak of her nihilistic state, runs into him with the car. And then he's dying in the ICU for a long time, not allowed to go to sleep. Something that we've heard Niles talking about earlier. Um, so I think that, you know, sure, that's true. You would not have arrived at that moment if Sarah did not hit her lowest peak in terms of how she feels about the situation. Yeah, it's not bad. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Dave, can I ask, like, what was the big, like, plot hole that you mentioned? Um, My issue is not a plot hole. Um, I think uh, this movie actually handles its premise really well. I really like how metered out it is, how it is really frantic in the beginning, but then we're given time with these two characters to kind of sit and let it germinate and have their, uh, you know, paths diverge uh, in the second act and then them come back together. And I think the character arcs are really interesting. And like, as I said before, kind of like allegorical for different ways of dealing with stagnancy or, uh, or a sense of kind of like purposelessness, or perhaps as Christine, you alerted to a kind of like privileged malaise, um, I think all this is pretty interesting. I can't stand the dialogue of this movie, though. I think it's it's a problem where it's a movie that wants to have it both ways as far as being an extremely like misanthropic and sardonic comedy, but also bringing those characters. And, and, you know, it, that makes sense as an expression of like these people who are stuck in a depressive state for a long time. You know, that's I've been there. I know people who've been there and it does become a communication. Uh, constantly you're communicating pain and it affects the way you speak. But this felt to me a little bit like like a freshman intro to nihilist and pessimist philosophy as taught by the screenwriters of bad Santa. Like we're just cursing up and down all the time. And, and like we talked about last week, it has its place. Like I love that in a nineties action movie that works in a Scorsese or a a Tarantino movie for me. I think that can, that can be fine. But when it shuffled into it as aggressively as it is here, I think it undermines a lot of the sentimentality of these characters because they are so performatively and outspokenly miserable and profane and it kind of devolves in the end like when we do have that speech and i thought like okay these characters are turning around like andy sandberg's character uh niles is becoming more like communicative about wanting more and like actually having a vested interest in escaping this situation and of course obviously sarah's reached that point but then the communication of that is the final one is the conversation of the what the extended sentence with grammatical annotation and everything and i'm just like okay stop it and then right after that, we get a few your mom jokes. And I'm like, okay, guys, you had a good idea. Why did you write it this way? But that's just me. Oh, I feel like the dialogue felt pretty natural coming out of Andy Sam. Like, yeah, in, that's an interesting, that's an interesting point. I like am not pulling up lines of dialogue as quickly as I wish I could to like say otherwise, <laughs> like to defend the dialogue. So if I didn't know who the director, or like, it felt like a like a Lonely Island, like Andy Samberg's music group. It felt like a extended Lonely Island movie and like kind of music video or something. So I felt like a lot of that like mom joke. Like I, I don't know. It just it it made sense to me in the way that Andy Samberg. What I think of when I think of him, the dialogue seemed to line up with that. Um, and I thought Kristen delivered her lines convincingly, but I'll have to 
maybe I'll look up some some scenes and find some moments of cringeworthy dialogue. I mean, I guess I will say it's not it's not the weakness of either actor. It's it's not Sandberg and it's not um sorry, Milani. Is that right? Milati. Milati. Yeah. I think yeah. there's an it's, extra it's, eye. it's not them. Um, I mean, I, th- I think they, you know, they perform it well. And I think, you know, the dialogue is apropos to them initially when they're like, you know, and kind of like confronting like a depressive purgatory. But a- as it goes on, I feel like I was letting it go. And then it got to that end part. And I was just like, no, my problem's just the dialogue. That's just the stumbling block I can't get past. Although I did appreciate pretty much everything else about the movie. There do feel like there are like considerable moments where it's like, like that's a try hard, you know, um, edgelord stuff. Yeah. 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 And I feel like it happens, you know, it, it's, it's falling into the category where, um, they're trying to make a, she's just like you, or, um, she's not like every other girl. And like the dialogue there is, <laughs> It's just like I see what you're trying to do. You're you're trying to say like um these two characters are on equal footing with one how they're viewing this and the situation and they're viewing life and then also like how they can be as, as people that like their personalities. Um but I, I just it it gets frustrating and annoying sometimes when um, female characters are written like that. I don't know if I'm articulating this well enough, but it just like sometimes that kind of stuff bothers me because it does feel like a try hard. You know, it's interesting. I didn't even really think about the dialogue much aside from the like one off side character lines. Um, and I guess, Christine, I'm glad you brought the point of like that's just kind of who Andy Samberg is. So I think. I didn't really think about it because he's just this big kind of out there person. I think most of the time, for me, a lot of that stuff kind of landed, especially the scene where he's mimicking Misty, his girlfriend. Um, This is me like halfway through the movie when they wake up and he just keeps mimicking her because he knows exactly what she's going to say. When Sarah walks in the room, she accuses um, Niles of cheating. And like, I think a moment kind of like immature joke moment like that. And I think that pays off. And if we have to have a few yo mamas at the end, I can live with that Yeah, for me. Yeah, I can see where it it definitely lands at moments. I'm not going to say like all the all the dialogue, especially the like the more like kind of one off things uh, are a problem because there are some really good like one liners and little jokes that and jabs that land here and there. Um, but I just think it, it's maybe it's it's, uh, it's just sort of like all the philosophical elements and how how that plays off or, or just like how aggressive it is about it's, it's nihilism. Like, I think there's, you know, one of those lines of just like someone saying something about like, I don't know, some, some vaguely saying something about God and the response being, Oh, there is no God. And then just continuing com- as a comic jab. And it's like, uh, I know those people that gets exhausting. And it, it just like little moments like that, I think popped up a lot, maybe for me. I think that's a really good kind of one other point, a good segue to a point I wrote kind of my notes was, is this movie deep or dumb? And not that necessarily a movie has to be one or the other, uh, but going back to kind of what I was saying before, like I think there are some ways in which this movie is successfully pretty deep, and then in fun ways, um, there's this movie is you know kind of dumb and like I think a fun, really fun way. Um, so just kind of final thoughts on deepness or dumbness. Where do you think you know you folks kind of land? I think it's got some really deep ideas, especially as concerns this premise. You know, I mean, it is it is like a yeah. I, I think like I said. Uh, the thing that's distracted me is the dialogue as, as far as what it actually explores in terms of its premise and it explores in terms of the, the momentum of the character arcs themselves and what they represent. I think it says some really deep things about, yeah, like about stagnancy, um, uh, some hints, hinges upon maybe venturing into some things about, uh, privileged malaise. Uh, but Christine, I think as you mentioned, it doesn't quite see through to that, that's deeper regard. Um, and I think it brings a lot of interesting a lot of interesting approaches in the different characters, as I said before, to um, to how people confront that situation in a deep way, uh, and in a way that is symbolically represented between the three characters. Um, so it's it's got some deep moments. I just think um, maybe if they if they focus more on the the sentimentality of delivering some of those ideas rather than a kind of fashionable nihilism, then it might have worked better for me. But I do think it's it's got a lot of depth. Yeah, I think that, like, I definitely, when I watched this, didn't feel like I walked away with any deeper meanings. But just, like, listening to this conversation, um, I feel like 
you know, if I was going to go watch this again, I could definitely pull out those. And I, Tori, you, I think you said this first at the the top um, of just like having someone in your life that makes hell worth living or life worth living, like that kind of stuff it is. Um, yeah. Yeah. I could definitely see that. And um, I, I, I guess I would put it on, on the more deep than dumb side. I feel like uh, without saying either deep or dumb, when I watched it, it was just a, like a fun ride. And I think kind of going back to Connor, like you sort of wrestling with how much to really uh, pick apart and try to critique and understand versus how much to just like roll with when you're watching a movie. Doing this podcast has been such an interesting kind of balancing act for me as well, where it's like, I'll watch movies a million times, but then when it like comes to like talking about it, I'll be like, okay, this is actually making me think of other things and like, and making me think about movies in different ways. So I feel like when I first watched this it was just like, okay, let's roll with it. Let's watch these two performers do uh, some really wonderful scenes together and have great chemistry. And I'd watched the OC all summer. <laughs> like, like, don't ask me why. So seeing Peter Gallagher suddenly pop up in a 2020 movie, a gem. But yeah, I think that like having discussed stuff with you guys and kind of understanding how this movie fits in. I think uh, this movie was getting a lot of buzz because it was like, oh, everyone's in lockdown. People are experiencing these sort of time loops day to day of, of quarantine, um, of COVID quarantining. And then... As we've talked and uh, reading some essays about the about the movie as well, there's a really wonderful uh, essay uh, on Pop Dust written by uh, Sydney Sweeney, who, who talks a little bit about the the film review. It says the death of white escapism in Hulu's Palm Springs, and she talks a little bit more about um, kind of what it like what scenes like the. Uh, scene where Kristen and Andy are pulled over by the cops and essentially as two white people, they can just yell at the cops and, and sort of act through this fantasy because they're living in this loop. Whereas if these two people were people of color, like this would be a wildly different situation. And really what does it mean to be looking at a movie both within the, through the lens of like COVID quarantine, but also within uh, protests protesting police brutality, uh, uh, the death of George Floyd, things like that. So it's like, it's fascinating to kind of look at this movie with through different um, contexts. And uh, so it's like, it's a comedy that got a lot of buzz and like was very enjoyable, but then talking with you guys and kind of reading uh, other things that uh, people are having to say kind of just add interesting uh, lenses and interesting padding to, to the reading of the book. So, or the reading of the movie. So to answer your question, I don't know whether it's dumb or uh, deep, but it's definitely been an interesting movie to think about and probably a movie I, I will rewatch uh, even like a third time after, uh, after watch, after discussing this. So yeah, kind of, that's where I land. <laughs> Yeah, I think it pulls, as you guys have all mentioned, you know, a lot of, I think where I'm sort of landing on is a lot of really the best of dumb stuff and the best of deep and a lot of good, like deep stuff um, as well. And I'm glad you brought up thinking about movies over the podcast as a whole, because I think for me, this is a really great microcosm of why I really enjoy watching movies and talking about movies. Um, and I'm glad you brought up sort of like adding different lenses through which to discuss and, you know, think about a movie. Well, I got some kind of fun, interesting trivia stuff. Um, just last or uh, like two weeks ago, Hulu released the first ever streaming only uh, commentary edition of a movie uh, for Palm Springs. So that just came out like, yeah, January 25th. And so it's basically you're on a Zoom call with Andy Samberg, um, Chris Emiliotti, and then the writer and the director. And so the I, I didn't watch the whole thing because I just realized it after watching the movie, uh, but I scrubbed through it and it's pretty cool because it's sort of like your normal kind of commentary track. And then if they're like going in a deeper discussion, it pops out to like a Zoom window as the film's playing, as they're like kind of going deeper into some production notes. That's uh, a fun so, idea. Yeah, that's really cool. Especially when everybody is in quarantine on a computer, why not just 
you know, throw the actor some money and have them be on Zoom and just talk about the movie. So I thought that was a pretty cool idea. Um, and so hopefully, you know, Hulu and these other streaming services will do more of that stuff because I think that's really cool. Um, and just some insights from what I looked up on what was said in the commentary edition, um, which I think are kind of interesting. It was around 30 degrees during the filming of the reception. So on top of all these time loop movies is the actual filming of the movie itself where they do every scene pretty much just through all the iterations that it goes through. So 30 degrees during the filming of the wedding reception, bugs also invaded the scenes and much of the film's post-production efforts were to digitally remove the bugs that were invading the set. That's like the funniest thing I might have ever heard. You know, that's really funny, too, that, like, yeah, because of having to, like, make use of the same consistent, for continuity, the same consistent set piece, and going through all these very different iterations of that reception, because it goes in so many different directions and is exploited to comic ends and sabotaged in so many interesting ways that, like, yeah, imagine shooting that, like, back to back to back must have been very strange and interesting. Mm-hmm. Let some extras flex their muscles, you know? They have to do the same scene over and over, and they're, like, probably doing... Some interesting, uh, subtle changes or honing their skills. Um, Going off the reception scene, uh, at the beginning of the movie, Niles, he gives a speech. You don't really know he's in a time loop, but, you know, that's revealed. And then there's a scene where he's dancing around. He's putting chairs under people who are falling and ducking under people because he knows exactly where everybody's going. And that scene was filmed um, just in five takes, which I think is cool. That's a really long scene, too. Uh, the caves were filmed at the Bronson Caves in California, which uh, were made famous in the 1960s Batman series, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, Sandberg, during the commentary, references Groundhog Day, Edge of Tomorrow, another movie we talked about, uh, and Happy Death Day. I'm sure that's one we'll talk about in the future. I, I really like that movie. Um, and it acknowledges that they'd never be able to fully differentiate themselves on the time loop front. So instead, they acted as if the audiences already knew what this was, so they didn't have to waste setup time which I agree with, but also I like in Happy Death Day when they reference Groundhog Day at the end. I forget if that's the first one or the second one. Um, the first one. And so, I don't know. It just feels like, I don't know. If they name dropped, it's like every, I feel like that's such a cultural reference. Uh, but I just thought that was interesting that they talked about it. Uh, Miliotti said she viewed the time as a nightmare, but Sandberg said he would use it to watch all of MASH and ALF. That's how he would spend his time. Um, and the scene uh, when it's revealed that Sarah had sex with Abe, who's the groom getting married, that's like a big kind of plot twist about halfway through the movie, that every day that she wakes up, it's in the bed of the groom, um, that her, you know, the man that her sister's going to marry, um, that it was the distracting scene because um, Tyler Hotchlin is his name, um, his torso was too ripped. So they had to digitally, um, and it was pulling too much tension away in the scene, apparently, from test audiences. So they had to use color correction to knock the visibility of his abs down. It's like the Henry, Henry Cavill mustache all over again. But like, what a compliment, right? Yeah. Sorry, Tyler. Um, you're just too fit. You're too ripped to film. <laughs> and I'm Those abs sure. should get credits at the end of the movie if it caused that much of a stir on set. <laughs> I think he even plays Superman in the CW universe, too, I think. He does. There you uh, go. On Teen Wolf a long time ago. <laughs> he, he has some great uh, facial reactions in the movie. Yeah, he, he's, he's a delight to watch. And those seem to be the most kind of relevant things said from the commentary. Um, yeah, so interesting to see if Hulu and Netflix will do more of these in the future. So as we're kind of winding down, any sort of final thoughts on Palm Springs or anything we've been talking about so far? Big, uh, you know, big tip of the hat to the um, the cinematography of the movie. The movie looks great, um, and there's a lot of really great shot composition. Um, a lot of the way that it frames, you know, a pretty a monotonous desert landscape is is really varied in some really thoughtful ways. And um, I really like the pace of its editing, not only in terms of, of splicing up a familiar concept and accentuating it, um, but also just like the sort of like frenzied cuts that occur every once in a while, like when. Um, when Sarah is uh, talking to the bride to be and like, it's this whole thing when she's first realizing that she's caught in the loop. And it's this really frenzied series of cuts where like everyone is kind of like shouting something and it keeps cutting from one person to another. And then is punctuated in the end with her throwing up in this uh, wastebasket and just kind of like this acceleration of like the frenzy of that scene through its editing, I think is really smart and uh, comes up a couple times in this movie. 
So yeah, the editing and cinematography, I think of this movie are, are very considered and really well paced and really well laid out. I'm so glad you brought up uh, the cinematography because yeah, it was shot so well. And the cinematographer also shot this movie, the little hours, which I thought was so was shot so well. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. Her name is Kuyen Tran and I could like, yeah, the, the vibrant, the color vibrancy was similar um yeah she's she's great so i was like oh, yeah, yeah totally i just looked her up it was like the little hours was great too movie loves its pool shots also people jump it into the bright blue pool yeah that that always i'm always sold on that you can't have enough of that well thanks so much for stopping by today butter with that fam and our lovely listeners thanks for talking about palm springs uh check it out on hulu it's hulu exclusive so it's never going anywhere stream it forever um, oh, one last note I wanted to bring up was that um, it premiered at Sundance in January of 2020, and Hulu bought the rights for $17,500,000 uh, So that is the highest record that a movie has ever sold at Sundance by 69 cents, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> and it must have made them a fuck ton of money if they made a commentary edition of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think I read somewhere that this was one of the most like um, one of the most watched within its opening quote quote unquote opening weekend on the streaming platform ever, mm-hmm. um, which is you know quite an accolade, albeit during a year where we're all locked in our houses. <laughs> well, thanks so much for stopping by. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Shoot us emails at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail dot com, and anything specific that folks want to plug as we're winding down. Um, so show, uh, um, show some love for the other podcasts on the movie John network. Um, we're all, we're part of a bigger family now. And, uh, you can follow it at MJ pod network on Instagram. Yeah. And I'm sure more info to come on some of those great shows, which you can tune into through there. Oh yeah. Cool. We'll have a great night and uh, stay tuned for more time travel hijinks with butter with that. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. See.